Okay, we are ready to go this morning. And if you haven't gotten a copy of the handouts, there's three handouts and they're all different and they're new. So if you don't have a copy of the handouts, then um, please pick one up for yourself. And uh, we will continue our series on baptism, a Baptist view. And today we're going to start on the topic of the foundations of infant baptism examined. This is part one. And I'm not sure how many parts we're going to have to this. I think probably at least three in the category of understanding covenants because it's a pretty broad topic. So we will uh, plunge in with that today and uh, trust that the Lord will give us some help and insight. So let's, uh, let's pray this morning for the Lord's blessing on our time. And I'm going to ask, uh, let's see, Tom Pope, would you open us in prayer, please? Sure. Father God, we're so privileged to be able to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ who are to study your word. Hoping, Father, that we'll be able to understand even more those things that the Holy Spirit has given to you, to the writers of the gospel, to help us understand not the reason for baptism, but what baptism does in relation to the gospel. So we pray, Father, that we give wisdom to our teacher today. Thank you for bringing us here safely this morning. We ask that Amen. How many of you have heard of the uh, famous theologian Mark Twain? <laughs> okay, Tom's heard of him. But, well, he was once asked the question, uh, do you believe in infant baptism? And Twain replied, believe in it? Why, I've seen it done. And, uh, I need to make a uh, correction of something that I said the first uh, week when I, we began this series. And I said that I have a great love and appreciation for uh, many of my Pado-Baptist brothers, brothers. And I mentioned three of them, um, John Murray, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer. And I'm not saying that I don't have a love and appreciation for them. I still do have a great love and respect for them. But I was reflecting this week on the fact that all three of those men uh, have died. They've gone on to be with the Lord. So I need to correct myself and say they are now formerly Pado-Baptists. <clears throat> some of you will get that. All right. So uh, just kidding. Now. If you would take out the new handout that's the chart that I've been going through, just take a look at that. It's this. Uh, I had some good feedback from someone saying that they had a little bit of trouble filling in all the blanks on the previous uh, copy that I had given to you. So here is a copy with all the blanks filled in. So there you go. If you haven't been able to find all the blanks, then you've got a copy. We're not going to go over this except by just a one-sentence review of it shortly. But um, I wanted you to have a copy of this so that you could, could use that uh, at home for your own uh, study. Now, what, we've, what we have covered in the last five weeks uh, was discussing those particular, each of those five columns in that chart. And so it should be completed. <clears throat> But um, I have not seen baptism dealt with in the way that, that has been presented in that chart uh, by Pado-Baptists. I think that's because 
They go to the Old Testament primarily for their foundational support for infant baptism. A few Baptists, if any, will demonstrate the connection between John's baptism, Jesus' own baptism by John, the Judean baptisms of Jesus through his disciples, Christian baptism then, as it was commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Great Commission, which is recorded both in Matthew 28 and um, another version of it in Luke 24, and then also the record of the apostles as uh, practicing this Great Commission that was given by Christ. Um, I don't really, and, and then, you know, and, and is explained in the book of Acts and some in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I don't see paedobaptists dealing with all of that biblical material that has to do with baptism. And if any of you know of somebody who's doing that, if you, you know of any, um, any uh, books that deal with that, let me know. Now, I'm not saying that they never touch on any of those topics. They do, uh, but oftentimes they're just here and there, not showing you the flow in the history of redemption as to how baptism um, came about and was developed. <clears throat> now, as a Baptist, and I, I think that's because they go to the Old Testament primarily. Uh, as a Baptist, I assert uh, that this exclusively New Testament ordinance is best understood when you carefully examine what the New Testament says about the ordinance. I do not mean that we ignore the Old Testament or that the Old Testament gives us no helpful background for understanding the ordinance of baptism, but I do mean that the clearest revelation for this New Testament ordinance is found in the New Testament. That is especially true when you consider that there are how many Old Testament texts that deal with the subject of baptism? Zero. No Old Testament texts deal with the subject of baptism. So, we go to the New Testament, find out about it. You would not go to the Old Testament to find its clearest definition and explanation and description of the other New Testament ordinance of the Lord's Supper, would you? You could see some background there for sure. Would you go to the Old Testament to find the clearest and most definitive explanation of the other New Testament ordinance of the Lord's Supper? Or would you go to the New Testament? Well, I don't think we should either go to the Old Testament for our foundational defense of baptism. I think we go to the New Testament. And um, at the end of the last lesson, I pointed out that there's not a single command for or example of or discussion of baptism of infants in the entire Bible, both Old and New Testament. And in fact, um, Here's what uh, John Murray himself says about that. It is only too apparent that if we had an express command or even a proven case of infant baptism with an apostolic sanction, then the controversy would not have arisen. I mean, and, and he's not the only one. Um, most paedobaptists will admit there is no New Testament support for baptism, at least like this. And you might think that settles the issue, as I indicated before, but it doesn't. It doesn't settle the issue at all. So what are the arguments for uh, infant baptism? In the, remaining, uh, in the remaining, we remaining weeks, I plan to deal with the key and central issues as best that I can 
But as we do so, I want you to understand what John Murray himself says about the defense for infant baptism. He says the evidence for infant baptism falls into the category of good and necessary inference, inferences that will come from the Old Testament. Now, uh, as a Baptist, I have no problem with solid deductions uh, by good and necessary inference. I have no problem with that. The doctrine of the Trinity involves good and necessary inference. The doctrine of the two natures of Christ does as well. I, have no, I don't have any problem with that, but it must be a necessary inference, not merely a possible inference. And I have not been able to find infant baptism, even by good and necessary infant inference in the scriptures. Now, if a pastor is going to lay on the conscience of his sheep that they should baptize their infant children because God requires it, then that pastor must be able to clearly demonstrate from the scriptures accurately interpreted that such is required. And I've not been able to find that myself. Pedobaptists go to the Old Testament covenants to find their support for pedobaptism as we're going to discuss this subject and try to be at least somewhat thorough in our discussion of it. We must go there as well to the Old Testament covenants. Um, so as we begin uh, to examine the arguments that Pedobaptists put in the category of good and necessary inference, we will start with the basic view of covenants in the Bible, and especially what is called the covenant of grace, which is where the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, Pedobaptist doc document, Presbyterian document, uh, where, the, where they start, where the Westminster Confession of Faith, faith starts, and where uh, most Pedobaptists go. They go to this to the doctrine of the covenant of grace. But to understand the argument from the covenant of grace, going from covenant of grace to infant baptism, we have to understand what the Bible teaches about covenants in general. And this is going to take some explaining. It might seem like a, a departure or a, a deviation from the topic, but I think that it is needed in order for us to be able to grapple with uh, how the Pado baptists defend their position. So... <laughs> Stick with me on this, especially uh, today. Um, stick with me. Uh, what we're going to discuss now will also help, though, in your understanding of, I think, the whole storyline of the Bible, because the whole storyline of the Bible involves covenants. And uh, what we're going to be talking about today is not just going to be applicable to understanding Pado baptist view of the covenants, but it's going to be helpful, I believe, in our, whole, in our understanding of the whole storyline of the Bible. It's going to be kind of like, and when we get done with this, at least to some degree, it'll be like taking a, a, a puzzle box that has a thousand piece, pieces in it. Um, we're going to be looking at some of the individual pieces, but we, I, want to, I want us to be able to see the whole picture that's on the front of the box so we see how those puzzle pieces fit into the picture. So we're going to kind of move in that direction now. So to do that, let's look at some of the characteristics of ancient Near Eastern covenants. Covenant, covenants are not unique to the Bible. Um, they existed before uh, they were written in the scriptures. <clears throat> so let's look at a brief definition of a covenant. 
Now, I don't think there's any one good, one-size-fits-all definition that's available. It depends on the covenant type. But all have two or more parties with a relationship of obligations required or promises made by one or more of the parties. So that's uh, kind of a general description of the covenant. Now, the covenant types, there are two main covenant types that we find in the scriptures. The first is a parity, the second is a suzerainty covenant, and we're going to not spend a lot of time on parity covenants because it's not as germane to our topic this morning. But what does parity mean? It means equality. And so when we talk about a parity covenant, we're talking about a public legal, legal agreement between two or more equal parties for their mutual benefit. We know what covenants are. We engage in them all the time in our society. If you've ever bought a house, you've, uh, you've had a covenant. You make an agreement with somebody who's of an equal party to you. They're selling their house. You're buying the house. They get a, a benefit from it. They get your money. You get a benefit from it. You get the house. So we use, we use covenants all the time. In fact, my documents for my purchase of my house has the word covenant in it at the top. And some of yours may as well. So we know what covenants are in this, in this regard, parity covenants. And uh, some examples in the Bible are Abraham and Abimelech, Isaac and Abimelech, Jacob and Laban, David and Jonathan, King Solomon and King Hiram. There are other parity covenants. And so that is uh, what, one of the covenant types. But that's not the area where we want to focus. We're going to focus on the second covenant type, and that is a suzerainty covenant. Now, what's a suzerain? What is a suzerain? The suzerain, the word suzerain means... Um, a superior lord or an overlord to whom fealty, that is uh, devotion, absolute devotion, is due. A suzerain is a dominant ruler, or it could be a state, a dominant ruler that controls the affairs of a vassal, that is a subservient subject or state. In other words, in, in, typically in the ancient Near East, you'd have a great powerful king and he was the suzerain, and he may come in, either conquer or just intimidate a lesser king, a vassal king, and uh, they would engage in, or they would establish a covenant between them, an agreement between them. And those were called suzerainty covenants. <clears throat> and all of the biblical covenants involving God and his creatures are of this type, I believe. So, there are two subtypes of suzerainty covenants, um, promise and law covenants. You sticking with me on this? Okay, hang on. There are promise covenants and there are law covenants. And we will explain those uh, more in, in the future here. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at some of the features of a suzerainty covenant. Why are we going to do that? It's because those features are revealed in the scriptures, in the covenants that are in the Bible. And so we need to understand this and it will be helpful for us. What are some of the features? Well, um, first of all, with regard to the function of the covenant, what I'm going to do, first of all, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to give you a very brief overview of the features of a suzerainty covenant, and then I'm going to go back and we're going to see how those features are manifest in the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the one that best illustrates these features. Um, so that's where we're going. First of all, the overview, then look at it in the Mosaic covenant. Now, the function of the covenant, the origin is unilateral. That means, uh, in this case, God is the one who establishes the covenant. 
The operation is bilateral, meaning there are two parties and both of them perform their obligations. What about the form of the covenant? It's kind of like a genre. Uh, we have apocalyptic genre. We have uh, poetic genre in the Bible. Well, the same sort of thing is involved with regard to covenants. So what about the genre? Well, there's a preamble which describes the covenant author, his titles, his attributes, and his genealogy. And let me give you just real quickly an example of a preamble. And I'm not going to do that, this on all of the features. I'm just going to do it on this one just to give you a little taste of what some of the covenants were like in the ancient Near East. But I think it's helpful just to give you a little bit of a flavor. So here's a preamble to one of the ancient uh, covenants. This is from a, a suzerain king, a great king, who is writing and who is establishing the covenant for a lesser king of vassal king. And in the preamble where he's identifying himself and his attributes, he says, these are the words of the sun god. They called themselves gods. The sun god, Mercilus, the great king, the king of the Hatti land, the valiant, the favorite of the storm god, the son of Supiluliumis. I love that name. The great king, the king of the Hattiland, the valiant. And by the way, if you're looking for, you're going to have some more kids and you want a name for your kid, how about Supiluliumis? There you go. But anyway, that gives you an idea um, of how the preamble to one of the ancient Near Eastern covenants begins. And it goes on like that. Um, so there's a preamble to the covenant. Then there is a historical prologue which describes the previous relationship between the two parties. There, is, there are stipulations, which describes vassal obligations, which are generally policy law and case law. We'll talk about that more. There are future provisions for the covenant text because there was a covenant text that was written out, and that covenant text was typically deposited in the sanctuary of the, of the great king and of the vassal king. They would each have a copy and kept in their sanctuaries, the, the the temple of their gods. And um, there's a periodic public reading of the covenant document that was prescribed typically in those treaties. Then there were sanctions, which was a means of, of enforcing the suzerain's standards, the stipulations of the covenant. And so there were typically blessings and cursings, blessings for covenant loyalty and faithfulness, cursings for covenant infidelity and faithlessness. So there are sanctions in the covenant. There were witnesses in the covenant, and typically uh, they would call upon their gods as witnesses, like the Hittite god uh, Kumarbi, Tarhun, Arena, Inara, etc. So they would call a big long list of, of gods as witnesses, and those gods would come, they think, to take, a, uh, a, to take vengeance on those who were failing to meet up to the covenant sanctions or covenant stipulations. So they had witnesses, and then there was a ceremony. So that's the form of the covenant. Then after the covenant was written and established, they would have a ceremony that would seal the covenant. And there would usually be a ratifying oath and a covenant meal. Uh, so there was a covenant meal to seal the deal. Then there was a sign of the covenant. So those are the features of suzerainty covenants. Now, um, I kind of rushed through that because we're going to go back over that and see how those features are manifest in the covenants 
uh, in the Bible. In particular, we're going to look at the Mosaic Covenant. So if you have that document that I uh, provided for you there, the Mosaic Covenant document, the one that says Exodus on it, there's one that says Deuteronomy, and then there's one that is for Exodus. We're going to go through the one for Exodus, and then the other one is just kind of for your use later. <clears throat> so before we plunge into that, any questions? Everybody awake? You guys are going to be a little bit technical, I know, but stick with me. You'll, it'll be beneficial in the long run. All right, so the Mosaic Covenant. Where do we see these features in the Mosaic Covenant? Well, what about the preamble, which describes the covenant author? You remember when the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, and they, were, they went through the Red Sea, they wandered around the wilderness, they ended up at Mount Sinai, right? And at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 20, we read of the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. And the, and the Lord comes to them, and he gives them the Mosaic Covenant in the form of the Ten Commandments and other things as well. So in this, in the Ten Commandments, we see the Lord using this covenant type of uh, suzerainty covenant in, in the Ten Commandments. So, for example, the preamble, he starts off, I am the Lord, Jehovah, your God. They just got be- delivered from Egypt. Here is identifying the covenant author. I am Jehovah. I am the one that I, who uh, identi- I identified myself as the I am. When Moses said, who is it that's going to, uh, who, who should I say to Pharaoh has sent me? He says, Yahweh, Jehovah has sent me. And so he identifies himself. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am not Ra. I am not Osiris. I am not one of these Egyptian gods. I am Jehovah, the one true and living God. I am your God. So he identifies himself in the preamble. Then there's a historical prologue where the previous relationship between the two parties is uh, indicated. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You were once slaves. You were once in bondage there. I've delivered you from that. So that's the preamble now in the historical prologue. What about the stipulations? This describes the vassal obligations. The vassal in this case is going to be the nation of Israel. What are their obligations? Well, there is general or policy law in the covenant. Example, the fifth commandment. All the Ten Commandments are, but I'm just going to pull out a couple. What about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So there's a general policy law. But later on in the covenant, <clears throat> that policy law is ply, applied to particular cases. So in chapter 21, which is also part of the law, it was part of what is called the Book of the Covenant, which is chapters 20 to 24 in Exodus, uh, we read this, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Okay, so that's an application in a particular case of the general policy law to honor your father and your mother. What does that mean? It means if you strike them, you are not honoring them. Next commandment in the same uh, section there, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Another application of the policy. So these are case laws applying the policy law. 
Another example, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Well, how is that applied in the Mosaic Covenant? Later on in chapter 21, we read this, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if it did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, and I believe that's a, a way of saying that they would under, have understood, that's a way of saying that it was an accident, uh, but, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So the guy who, gets, who kills somebody can flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So what happens here is there, there's an application of particular cases. This is case law saying, all right, so yeah, what is murder? The policy is you shall not murder. What is murder? There's another example that's given in the law. What if a guy's out and he's swinging an ax and the ax head flies off and hits somebody in the head and kills him? Is that murder? Well, he, this, is saying, this uh, passage here is telling us, no, it's not murder, not if it's an accident. Not if he didn't willfully attack the other person. He wasn't trying to kill him. It just was an accident. So he's not going to be held guilty of murder. But if he strikes him, willfully attacking him, then he will be held guilty of murder. And so these case laws explain and help us to understand the nature of the policy law. But there's a general policy, and then there are case laws that exist in the Mosaic Covenant. Those are the stipulations. What about the future provisions for the covenant text? The deposit of the covenant document in the sanctuary. <clears throat> now, we read in Exodus 31, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Where was the ark of the covenant kept? Yeah, it was in the Holy of Holies. Remember the sanctuary of the gods? That's where it's kept. Um, the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and the tablets of the testimony of the uh, Mosaic Covenant were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. So he says, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. <clears throat> By the way, just side, the two tablets, there was generally one, there was usually a copy made for the vassal king and a copy made for the great king, the, the, um, the suzerain. And so I think that the two tablets actually had all ten commandments on them. Yes. That's my thought on this, my opinion of that. And so there was a copy for Israel and a copy for God kept in the Ark of the Covenant. What about the uh, periodic public reading of the covenant document? Well, uh, the Lord says, there I will meet with you, that is, uh, at the Ark of the Covenant, there I will meet with you, and from above the atoning cover, from between the two cherubim, uh, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you about every commandment that I will give you for the sons of Israel. And so he's going to speak to them in this instance, which is a way of kind of doing another public reading or review of the covenant document and later on in the second in the renewal of the mosaic uh, of the mosaic covenant uh, this was developed so that that uh, deuteronomy 31 says that there's going to be a re uh, the, this review of the covenant is going to actually be required to be read the document is going to be required to be read and you can read that 
in Deuteronomy 31 where um, that occurs. But the main point here is that the periodic public reading, that is the reminder of what the covenant terms are, was provided for in the covenants. Then what about sanctions? Uh, sanctions means simply the uh, enforcing of the suzerain standards, in this case, the, the enforcing of God's standards, his, the enforcing of his law, his, his stipulations. So what about blessings for the covenant for uh, covenant loyalty? Uh, in Exodus 20, verse, 20 uh, verse 6, we read, that God shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here's the, the blessing of God's steadfast love that comes upon them. This one example. Uh, what about the Sabbath? The seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. What does Sabbath mean? The word Sabbath? Rest. Rest, yeah. So I'm you're not going to have to labor seven days like you might have had to do in Egypt. I'm going to give you a day of rest. This is a blessing in the covenant. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. I'm going to give you a day that I am blessing. This is a blessing in the covenant. And made it holy. And then, uh, with regard to honoring your parents, there's another. There's a blessing attached to that. That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And so there's this blessing that comes in the covenants, but there's also cursing for disloyalty. <clears throat> the Lord says, do not make idols. What happened? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So um, don't make idols. I'm going to visit you in judgment if you do, even to the third and fourth generation. Don't take my name in vain because I will not hold you guiltless. There's there the, the curses of the covenant. Now that is in a little more abbreviated form in the, um, in the book of uh, of Exodus, but if you go to the book of Deuteronomy and you see where Moses um, is telling them what they're supposed to do when they enter to the land of Canaan, okay, Sinai is where God establishes the covenant to begin with. When they go into the land of Canaan and the book of Deuteronomy is all about renewing the covenant as they go into the land of Canaan and so the Ten Commandments are repeated, etc. But there's more, there's more development that happens in the book of Deuteronomy. We're not going to go through all this in your second handout about the book of Deuteronomy, but just one of the examples, which I think is very helpful, is to see how God applies this matter of sanctions uh, as it is required of them as they enter into the land of Canaan. So in Deuteronomy chapter 27, <clears throat> here's what they are supposed to do. Moses also charged the people on that day saying, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim. And he named six tribes. So six tribes are supposed to stand on Mount Gerizim. And he says, and these will, will uh, and, and they will stand on Mount Gerizim for the curse. These shall stand on Mount Ebal. And he names six other tribes. They stand on Mount Ebal and they stand there to pronounce the blessing. And then the Levites who had not an inheritance like the other tribes, they stand in the valley in between the two mountains. The Levites stand there, and they read 
the covenant curses and blessings. And so the Levites would read things like, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or his mother. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. Cursed is the one who misleads a blind person on the road. Cursed is the one who destroys the justice due to an alien. Cursed, 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 cursed. And when the Levites read those curses, those on Mount Ebal were to pronounce, Amen. Cursed is the man who misleads a blind man. Amen. They shouted that. So this is a big ceremony that they went on. And then he started, and then after that they would read the blessings. So blessed shall you be in the city and shall you, and blessed shall you be in the country. And the, those on Mount Gerizim, amen. Blessed shall be your offspring of your body. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And the, those on Mount Gerizim, amen, amen. And so here's this covenant ceremony um, identifying the curses and the blessings of the covenant that the Israelites are supposed to perform. And you can read the book of Joshua where they actually did this. This is Moses telling them what to do when they get there. And then in the book of Joshua, they do it. So those are the sanctions uh, of the covenant, the blessings and the curses that were in the covenant. Now, what about witnesses? Well, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar. Why did, he, why did this happen? Just after giving the Ten Commandments, um, he gets up early in the morning and he goes out and he builds an altar at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. And 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's got this altar and 12 pillars, each of those pillars representing each of the tribes of Israel. What's that all about? Well, the altar stands as a witness. Um, an example that helps us to understand this is in Joshua um, 22, where the Lord says, Therefore, we, we said, let us now build an altar, not for the burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us. And so they build this altar, and Moses builds this altar as a witness, it stands as a witness. Um, and you might wonder why do you read, for example, the book of Deuteronomy, I call heaven and earth as witness against you today. And what's, what's that about? That's because it's part of the covenant and establishing witnesses. Now, pagan covenants, they would call all their pagan gods. There are no pagan gods in reality. And so the Lord uh, incorporates this feature in a different way. So they're witnesses to the covenant. What about the ceremony? This is a crucial aspect. <clears throat> the ceremony of the, of the covenant. <clears throat> this seals the covenant. And there is a ratifying oath that seals the covenant. Let me give you the, the example of that for the Mosaic covenant. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, that is all the laws. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then it says, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord, kills these animals. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. <clears throat> so he takes the blood of these animals he sacrificed, puts it in a basin, and half of the blood, he throws it against the altar that have been built, these 12 pillars. So he takes his blood, throws it on the altar as a witness 
for future generations of what took place there. And he takes, and, and it says, and then he took the book of the covenant, which I mentioned before is Exodus 20 to 24, is usually considered to be the book of the covenant, all those chapters. He took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. So he reads all the curses and the blessings. He reads the stipulations of the covenant. And what is it, what happens then, next? And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Who's swearing this oath? Who's doing that? God or Israel? Israel. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. <laughs> How'd you like it? I have a basin of blood here and I came out and started spilling blood on you guys. Well, that might not be too fun, but that's, that's the ceremony that they went through. And what did that indicate? He sprinkles, he, and, he, and, and he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so he sprinkles the blood of the, uh, on them, and the slaying of the animals was a sign of the blood of the covenant. The blood was slain in ratifying this covenant. Israel swears, yes, we will keep the covenant. And in essence, by slaughtering the animals and, sp and, and sprinkling their blood on them, they are saying, we will keep all the words that we have promised to keep. We will be obedient. And if we are not obedient to the, wor to the words of this covenant, may it be done to us as it was done to these animals. May we be slain. So that's the ceremony. It seals the deal, as it were. That's what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the vassal then is swearing this ratifying oath, which is called a maledictory oath. And that makes it what I would call a law covenant. And it's not just me using that terminology. Paul himself uses it in Galatians 3 and in other places. So the vassal, when the vassal king, the little king, swears the oath of ratification, it indicates that it's a law covenant. Now what about the covenant meal, which is also part of the sealing ceremony? In Exodus chapter 24, we read, near the, end, or the middle of the book, we read this. The middle of the chapter. <clears throat> then Moses and Aaron... Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. So they had 70 elders representing the people, and they go up the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel. What is that? Does that ring any bells with you? They saw the God of Israel? What did God say later in Exodus when Moses says, show me your glory? He says, no man shall see me and live. Man shall not see me and live. You can't see me. But here, they see God. And it says, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he, God, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In this instance, he didn't slay them. They were allowed, in a certain sense, to see God, unlike most times, they beheld God, and then what did they do? They ate, and they drank. So here is God joining with the 70 elders of Israel, representing all of, uh, of Israel, representing the nation. 
they get together up on the mountain and they have a feast. There's a covenant meal and the covenant meal seals the deal. That's what's going on there. This is part of the covenant ceremony. And God makes an exception and lets them in a certain sense see him unlike other times. Because the establishment of this covenant is so important. So that's the covenant ceremony. Now, what about the last feature, the sign of the covenant? Well, the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. What's a sign? The sign is something physical or tangible. Um, something could be an event um, that points beyond itself to a greater reality. So, for example, you're driving down the interstate and you see those signs and, and where an exit is coming up and you see there's a Wendy's and a McDonald's and a Burger King and, you know, a Cracker Barrel, whatever. You see those signs that come up and they indicate the restaurants that are near the upcoming exit, right? The signs aren't the reality. They point to the reality. Well, covenant signs point to the covenant and its promises and or its obligations, and that's what is the nature of the covenant sign. And for the Mosaic covenant, the covenant sign is the Sabbath. So we read, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, it doesn't mean when he says, I sanctify you. That term there does not mean, and this will have bearing upon something that we'll look out in the future, but it doesn't mean that every single one of the Israelites were made one of God's people generally in their hearts, that they were regenerated. It simply means that you as a nation have been set apart from all other nations. Remember, God said in Deuteronomy 7, I chose you. Why? Not because you are greater than other, other nations, but I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I set my love upon you among all the nations of the earth. You're not an Egyptian nation. You're not a Hittite nation. You're not a Sumerian nation. You're not an Akkadian nation. I have chosen you of all the you know, nations of the earth. I have chosen you and I have set you apart. I have sanctified you, set you apart. Therefore, says the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he is a God who is a God who is the, the creator God. He has created all things, and there's no other God like him. I am God, I, I alone am God. And you're to keep my Sabbath as a sign of the covenant that has been established between you and me. So that's the Mosaic covenant. And um, that is the sign of the covenant is the keeping of the Sabbath. As a reminder that there, every, every uh, seven days, they were, to remind, they were reminded by keeping of the Sabbath of their covenant relationship with Jehovah and their obligations that they had sworn to keep in the stipulations of the covenant, in the curses and the blessings. So my purpose here is to orient you to the concept, the nature and the form of covenant so that we can evaluate the biblical covenants and evaluate the Pado-Baptist defense for baptizing infants that is based on the teaching of the so-called covenant of grace. 
So in, te- in simple terms, what the paedobaptists will do is they will say, paedobaptists argue that circumcision was a sign of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, and it was given to infants. Baptism has replaced circumcision as the covenant sign in the New Testament, and therefore it should be applied likewise to the infant children of believers now, in this day, unless the Bible expressly forbids it. And that's the heart of the argument, which I've read and seen explained from multiple paedobaptists and is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. But we have to look at what the Bible says about the covenant of grace and understand that, and and that's what we'll do in weeks to come. Not only the covenant of grace, but the Abrahamic covenant, which is another key one that paedobaptists look to. Uh, We have to look at those covenants and understand them, but we need this understanding, this background of what a covenant is, how it functioned, and how it existed in the days of of, uh, Moses and Abraham and others. Any questions that you have about any of this that we've covered this morning? No questions? All clear? Clear as... Okay. Um, John. Do you know of any signs that the cultures around Israel used? Um, I think I've forgotten. I'd have to go back and review. Yeah, but I, I don't remember offhand. Yes. Wesley. Could you go into a little more detail about how it altered the uh, it would be, it's kind of like, you know, the, we sing the song, Here I Raise Mine Ebenezer. Um, it's just that here, as they would see this altar, they see this physical um, construction, that it would stand as a witness, kind of like a reminder. It's kind of like a sign. Um, it would stand as a reminder of the covenant that was made between them. Okay. Not that the altar is somehow conscious. Oh, no, 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 not, not, not for biblical covenants, but that concept, you know, I call heaven and earth today as witness against you. It was kind of like the heavens declare the glory of God. It's not, it doesn't mean the heavens are animate, um, but it does mean that they, in, in their own way, in their way of creation, being a product of the creator, <coughs> demonstrate God's glory. Well, so this witness, this, this altar that we have built um, we are the builders of it. This manifests the fact that we entered into a covenant and this is a witness. Kind of like, uh, I don't know, um, we, we sign a document and our signature is a witness. Um, it, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, I gave you a handout for the Mosaic Covenant as it was delivered in the book of Deuteronomy, explained in the the book of Deuteronomy. We're probably not going to go through that, but I want you to have the handout so you have the references, and you can go home and study that on your own. You'll see the concept of covenant perhaps even more fully um, manifest and explained in the book of Deuteronomy. So take that home with you for your own study. And if we have no other questions, we will pick Tom. Yeah, I don't I don't know what happened there in Mount Sinai, because to my knowledge this text doesn't doesn't tell us. 
Um, it could it could have been that the uh, the seventy elders brought the food up with them. I I really don't know because the text doesn't tell. I mean, but... is there a responsibility between the original and the, you know, the two? Partners? Oh oh yeah yeah. Um, you know you mean typically in the ancient Near Eastern covenants, who would be responsible for providing that? Uh, yeah, that's another question that I don't know that I can tell you, but I think generally would have been the um, the suzerain. Okay, let's uh, pray and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that you have revealed so much of yourself to us in it. And we pray that you would bless our, our understanding of the word that we may better be able to understand you and understand your ways in this world and in history. Now bless Pastor Mark as he preaches to us this morning. May our hearts go out to you. May we um, worship you in spirit and in truth and be as the Israelites should have been, those who give you honor and praise and glory because you are our creator, you are our redeemer, and uh, you are worthy of our worship. You are the one true and living God. And so we pray for your blessing as we go to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Is, is what undergirds the Lord's Supper. That's mm. a covenant meal. Yeah. And I'm, th this is total speculation on my part, okay? Mm -hmm. I think God provided the meal on Mount Sinai. I think they got there and there was this meal spread.